Welcome to another edition of Inside the War Room. Ryan Ray here as always. And today my guest is, um, well, I'll let you answer this question, David. David Firestein, President and CEO of the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. We have, in my opinion, the world's leading scholar on U.S.-China relations and the world's pretending leading scholar on U.S.-China relations. Will we solve all the problems today in the 30 minutes? I sure hope so. I mean, that's what I came to do, Ryan. And okay. usually when you and I get together, I think we uh, we manage to uh, stir things up. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying. Okay. Well, good. Well, okay. Before we get into the, to, I do have a, a slight bone to pick with you. Um, in 2019, myself and three others won the Galactic Championship for International Diplomacy. Since then, I have called for all challengers to a cage match to be in my team. We represent the A-team. Um, you guys cannot find any challengers to take us on. Are you wanting to publicly say that no one, everyone's, they're scared? Are you, you are you finding someone? We're, we're, the A-team is still ready. We're, we're, we're not refusing, because I know people are, are whispering, is the A-team scared? We are not scared. We're ready for all challengers. Well, uh, let, let me recognize that it is really difficult to find anyone out there that can compete with what you and your team did in 2019. And let, let's just acknowledge that right at the outset. But we're still looking. So give me about another 12 months. And if we don't have somebody by then, then I personally will raise your arm as the champion for all time, and we'll just leave it at that. But give me give me another year on this one. Okay. Well, well we okay. It's on the record now. You have twelve months. Which today the uh, ninth. Okay. <clears throat> well, there we go. Okay. Let's get into some U.S. China and this kind of talk in general. Um, let's start here. I, I, I when I talk about uh, there's a thousand things about China. When I talk about China, I try to talk about it in three categories just to kind of keep it simple. Um, at least right now we have uh, Taiwan. We have the Uyghurs. And then we have Hong Kong. Okay. And from my perspective, U.S. standpoint, uh, those are the orders of priority as far as what we can do, how we can influence China, and where our focus should be Taiwan first, the Uyghur second, Hong Kong third. Um, would you agree with that assessment? Disagree? How would you characterize it? Um, and, and, and we'll go from there. Well, um, I think the three issues that you've mentioned are really important uh, in and of themselves, and they're really important to the United States. I don't know that they're the only three top level important issues in the relationship because obviously uh, US-China trade and investment issues are <clears throat> very, very important uh, and still very contentious. Um, and there are a number of other things as well, South China Sea. But yes, those three issues are very important. They certainly are top tier issues. Uh, in comments that I've made over the last year or so, I tend to put all three of those issues in, um, in that, that bucket of uh, issues in the U.S.-China relationship that is most uh, contentious, most difficult, and frankly, in some cases, probably intractable. Uh, also, I think um, it's important to, to recognize that on some of these things, uh, the ability of the United States to shape Chinese behavior is very limited. On others, I think it's greater. So I think we also have to look as a nation at what are the important issues in terms of our interests and values, but also what are the issues where we, we can really make a difference and then focus uh, on the areas where we can make a difference, because otherwise um, we're, we're kind of spinning our wheels. Okay, so what would be the, the best place that we can make a difference? <clears throat> well, um, I think of the issues that you mentioned, uh, and leaving aside any, trade, any, uh, any issue. Yeah. Well, um, a, a couple of things. One, I think we, we can make a difference on the U.S.-China trade relationship. I think we went the wrong direction under... President Trump, I just saw the data, uh, the completed data now for the four years of his presidency, and it is official. Uh, the largest average annual deficit under, in, in, under any presidency in American history goes to Donald Trump. 
Um, it's about 16 or 17 percent higher than the previous high for an average annual deficit under any presidency. <clears throat> and by his own metrics, we went in the wrong direction. But I think if we adopt uh, smarter policies that are better for America and that are more rooted in factual reality and more focused on the actual problems, I think we can get to a better place on trade. Um, and so that's one area where I think we can make a difference uh, working with China. It's not a kind of red line issue like some of these issues associated um, from China's vantage uh, with Chinese sovereignty, uh, such as Taiwan, such as the South China Sea, and certainly domestic issues within China's boundaries uh, and borders, such as the Xinjiang issue. So trade would be the one that I'd really put up there right at the outset. <clears throat> I do think the United States can and does make a difference on the matter of Taiwan because um, the United States has a robust relationship with Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is a friend, it's a partner, it is a fellow democracy. The United States um, sells arms to Taiwan, something I have long supported. Uh, and um, there's a very robust relationship there. And the United States can make a difference in terms of affecting the cross-strait uh, balance of power <clears throat> and the decision-making uh, and decision calculus on, on the mainland side. So here's another area where the United States can actually do something that, that shapes outcomes. But a lot of the other issues, I think we certainly want to be true to our values as a nation, but we should be realistic about what we can achieve when it comes to trying to affect developments that take place within the sovereign borders of the People's Republic of China, just as it would be very difficult for China to affect things that happen here within our borders. Yeah, yeah. So I want to circle back to this, but first, um, you hear China talk about internal issues. You know, we want the U.S. thing out of internal issues. For folks who might not understand when they say that, what do they mean? Because it sounds like it's like well, internal issues, you know, so maybe parse that out for the Chinese side. What are they saying to the world when they say it? And, and how should we interpret that from our side? Well, when, when China says that, what they mean is that there that things that happen within the sovereign borders of the People's Republic of China are um, are issues for China to handle. And, and from their vantage point, uh, they're not issues that the United States or any other country or any other entity should comment on or seek to... Um, <clears throat> influence. Mm. Um, now, obviously, many in the United States, and I'd say most of us in the United States and many in the world would disagree with that uh, way of looking at things. Uh, but from China's vantage, what they're saying is, hey, things that happen in our country really aren't your business, so butt out and let us handle it. Mm. And obviously, we in the United States have a very different perspective, and we tend to uh, comment um, as we see fit on events that take place uh, wholly within the borders of another nation. We also are fine with countries commenting on events that take place within our country. But I will say one thing, uh, and one thing I've noted uh, in recent months, subsequent to the adoption of the Hong Kong national security law in June of 2020, and that is that uh, there is some hypocrisy on China's part when it talks about the notion of, hey, don't interfere in our internal affairs, because that law, the Hong Kong national security law, actually criminalizes potentially uh, things that one American might say to another American in the United States of America. And if that's not interference in the internal affairs of a country, I don't know what is. So let's be honest, there's some hypocrisy on China's part here. I've pointed that out. And I think any dispassionate observer that looks at that would note uh, that that, is, that position on China's part is inconsistent with its own stated value of respecting uh, the, quote, internal affairs of other nations. So, you know, we have to be real and honest about these things. 
since that's come out, I've commented several times that I know the EU um, was having kind of some strife with Germany, uh, some of the big businesses there. To me, that's the easiest leverage point to point to to get China just to clarify the law, if nothing else, because that's <clears throat> all win. Let's go back and say, hey, is is this a problem? Like, are you actually going to prosecute our people when they land on your soil for something that's in the U.S.? Just to get them to clarify it, because get, and getting them to clarify it, they might roll it back and say, no, no, it doesn't mean that, even though it seems to mean that, um, or to get them to change it if it does mean that. Um, it's been a stunning that 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 the EU or the U.S. or these other nations that actually have sway in China <clears throat> won't, make, won't make them clarify that simple law, which is why when you talk about these these issues like the trade deal, um, I agree it's quite important. And I think, though, from the – okay, I'm a free market libertarian, so I'm always coming from the, from the business side of things. Um, you know, the trade stuff and a lot of the whining and complaining we hear from the Germans or from the U.S. is really a lot of these companies, they got in bed with China, and they did what – they did these deals that if – they told us about in 20, 30 years ago, we'd be like, oh, that sounds kind of, I don't know, it might not work out well for you. And now they're kind of reaping what they've sown. And so I don't necessarily feel bad for them, but also I want to hold them accountable and say, guys, you know, if, if you are standing up for these issues, then come out and say that you have um, a hotel in Taiwan or that you're against this. You won't because you're afraid. I don't know if the government can fix that um, as much as, um, as the private industry needs to figure out are they going to speak up about Chinese issues? And you look at someone like Tesla, who to my knowledge, and you, you would know it's better than I to my knowledge is the only company, US company that has a fully owned Chinese factory. Is that correct? And if so, you can't, you, you would expect that Elon Musk is very compromised on his ability to criticize um, the CCP. And so they, so I don't know how you solve these issues until the private sector determines that they are <coughs> going to say something um, and public sentiment from folks like me and every everyday Americans seems to be the support they would need I don't think we're going to get it from government because they won't simply get uh, China to clarify the Hong Kong law. Well, Ryan, a couple of things. One, I mean, the notion that money talks, or in the case of China, as sort of the examples that you were mentioning, that the market talks, it's not an alien concept in this country. I mean, have you ever heard of a, a U.S. senator that will say something that is not in the interests of one of his principal or her principal donors? I mean, the notion that people in, in Washington or people in this country are going to sit in judgment of a company because it won't say something that isn't aligned with its financial interests is the very definition of hypocrisy. And on a related note, uh, you know, you have a lot of U.S. senators and U.S. members of Congress, um, you know, spouting off about how China is stealing our jobs and so forth and so on. But what I'd like to know is I'd like to see the I'd like to see the um, uh, the tax returns of every one of those folks that goes on the record on this issue issue to see whether, in fact, they've been invested in the very companies. Uh, that they're publicly criticizing for outsourcing jobs. Uh, my guess is if those tax returns were to be uh, put into the public record, you'd find that a, a huge majority of the folks that are constantly critical of China are invested in Apple and invested in Dell Technologies when it was a public company and invested in, in uh, all of the major players, Microsoft and many, many others, thousands of others that have made uh, very significant profits in China over the last several decades. And if that's the case, as I suspect that it is, um, then, you know, again, there's just a large, uh, a huge amount of hypocrisy that we have to recognize exists. Um, and so until someone is willing to come, you know, onto the public record and say, look, this is where I am. Th these are my financial interests. I'm a public servant. Here's my tax returns. Let's let's lay it all out and let me show you, the American people, where I'm coming from as I make these comments. Unless and until that happens, I don't give particular credence to the criticism of people who are beholden to moneyed interests criticizing companies who are beholden to money interests. I just don't think it's a fair-minded thing to do. 
And I think companies need to sort through those issues themselves. And I think the U.S. government, again, I'm also a free market guy. I'm pro-business, pro-trade, pro-globalization, unapologetically. And I think the U.S. federal government ought to get out of the uh, corporate boardrooms and C-suites of U.S. companies and let them make decisions based on their own uh, corporate uh, considerations. Uh, that's what we've always done in this country. It's called the free market. And I just still think that that's a good idea for our nation. It's it, it's what made us the number one economy in the history of the world. Yeah. I, when I had Ted Cruz on a few weeks ago, he was saying something about a they're doing something. I said, I'm not sure that I want the government involved with these trade issues. I, I want what I want is, is what we see here is us to go to Disney or go to and you know, I'll give you a little inside baseball. People ask me quite often. They say, Hey, some of the stuff you say, do the Bush China people get mad at you about that? I say, No, they 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 are. Very, they, I don't think they listen. Probably, I hope they don't. <laughs> but but they're very they're very uh, they have a, a wide range of ideas, and that's one of the things that Absolutely. that I appreciate about being an affiliate of this organization. But but the counter to that is is that. These issues are complex. They're nuanced. You know, I don't know if I looked at my stock portfolio, if I would have companies who are employing Uyghur labor or not. Um, you know, that would there's there's a lot of things here. Um, but your point about the hypocrisy, that to me, as you know, we've talked many times about this, it drives me insane. And it's not that we can solve these issues uh, unilaterally, uh, unilaterally tomorrow. Um, it takes a process, but we, we're not even having the right discussions, which is why I'm, when I talk about the three issues, those are the three issues that government should kind of be involved in. Most of the other stuff, they probably shouldn't be from my perspective. So, and, and I don't think, to your point about the Uyghurs and Hong Kong, I think is where you're going. And I'll let you clarify. The Uyghur issue, it's, it's a genocide. We've, you know, I thought the Trump administration did the Biden administration a favor by classifying it as a genocide. Um, that way, the Biden administration didn't have to do it. They'd already said that Biden said, I think in August, that he agreed with it. He, he thought it was genocidal, but he didn't have to do it. So he just kind of, kind of maintained. Um, but on the Uyghurs, I'm not sure from the U.S. government standpoint, I'll, there's a lot that we can do other than tariffs and sanctions, and that's not going to get China to change its stance. So the, yeah. the best way to tackle that is to get the companies that are working there pressured from the market here in the U.S., from their stockholders, their their, their consumers. Uh, and and same thing for Hong Kong. I don't think there's a lot that the U.S. government can do there as well. So go, go ahead and respond. Well, a couple of things on that, uh, Ryan. First of all, let me let me make a broad point here, and I'll come back to this, the, the point that you make about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs. But let me make a broad point. Um, if if one is sitting back and looking objectively at from an American vantage point, okay, not from a Chinese or from a Venezuelan vantage point, but from an American vantage point, and looking at the U.S.-China relationship and looking at China's actions over the last four years, the one uh, inescapable conclusion that an objective, fact-based observer would have to come to is that China's behavior. From as viewed from an American perspective, has gotten worse in every single regard over the last four years. So let's 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 talk about that just for a second here. You mentioned Xinjiang, the the event, the um, the actions, the Chinese actions uh, and rights violations that are occurring in Xinjiang as as we sit here, didn't start until March and April of 2017, shortly after Trump became president. The Hong Kong law, uh, national security law that we just talked about, didn't go on the books until June of 2020, uh, three years, three and a half years into the Trump presidency. The record number of Chinese incursions into what Taiwan regards as its air defense identification zone, or ADIS, uh, didn't reach a high water mark until the year 2020. It was the largest number of incursions into Taiwan's uh, self-defined airspace, effectively, uh, that we've ever seen in history, and it happened on Trump's watch. Uh, China's aggressiveness in the South China Sea, by most standards, 
uh, including folks associated with the Trump administration, they say it's worse today than it was four years ago. And the list goes on. The point that I'm making is this, just the notion of having a self-proclaimed so-called tough president in the White House didn't do one doggone thing to stop China from doing any of these things. And on top of all of that, on top of all that, we have the largest average annual merchandise deficit we've had in our nation's entire history in terms of measuring one presidency against all the others. Trump has the record. He, he generated the highest deficits. We've lost manufacturing jobs. Prices are higher for consumers. We turned an, under Trump an agricultural surplus into an agricultural deficit for the first time in more than two decades. By any metric that you could look at, what you see when you look at the Trump record on China is carnage. And the idea that, uh, that Trump made things better is belied by every single fact that I've just laid out. And these are factual matters. So, uh, you know, the notion that the United States or Trump or anyone can affect what China actually does in Xinjiang or what China does within its sovereign borders uh, is, you know, that is belied by what we've seen over the last several years. Um, it doesn't mean we shouldn't speak out in a way that gives expression to our values. I think that's appropriate. Where we see uh, deplorable uh, actions, uh, we should speak out about those. By the way, we should also speak out about them when we see them here in the United States, as we do. Uh, and, um, and, you know, I think we need to be able to speak out, but we also have to recognize that the, there are limitations to the impact that we can have on these issues. And the clearest evidence of that is what's happened over the last four years with the Trump administration. In every regard, China's behavior is worse as viewed through an American lens. Okay, so let's take that in two parts. Um, first, yeah, so I think um, last week I wrote, I wrote a short piece uh, two weeks ago when Biden had his uh, CNN town hall and he had a three minute clip on China. I thought he did a great job of summarizing uh, Xi Jinping's policy stance, kind of how he thought. He called him xenophobic, which I thought was kind of got swept under the radar. And he, he said the cultural norm thing, which seemed to get all the attention. And I, I think the, the whole US China, the, the whole US media, no matter what the issue is, it seems to go you know, too far one way or too far the other. And I thought his comments um, were were pretty spot on. The cultural norm thing, I think, as you know, when you talk a lot or something like me talks a lot, you, you say things and you don't necessarily mean them the way that they sound. That's kind of what took. Um, but maybe unpack, did you agree with Biden's assessment in the three minutes that he gave us on China? Um, because I think that is going to tie into my follow-up uh, with what you just said. Well, uh, Ryan, um, yes, generally, I think that uh, the comments that I've heard President Biden make generally, uh, I think, are on the mark. Um, and I think the clearest uh, and, and fullest articulation of, of where he and the administration are on China uh, is in the interim guidance for the national security strategy, which was published uh, three or four days ago, I think, uh, this month in March. And it lays out um, where the Biden administration is on China in a, in a pretty um, comprehensive way. And it lays out all of the challenges associated with trade, with investment, with technology, with uh, China's um, geopolitical ambitions, with the issues of human rights and Xinjiang in particular. It references Tibet. It references uh, our relationship, our robust relationship with Taiwan. And I think um, uh, all, in all those regards, uh, I personally regard the Biden administration as being um, in a very defensible and, and, and good place for America uh, when it comes to how it's approaching China. At the same time, uh, the Biden administration and President Biden personally has 
talked about uh, the need to work with China on issues like public health, uh, the climate change, um, and arms control and uh, nuclear nonproliferation and other issues where no one country by definition can solve the problem because the problem is a global challenge. And I think that also makes sense. So yeah, Ryan, to your point, both in the three minute comments uh, and also in the fuller expression of where the Biden administration is, um, I think the Biden administration has it right. And it's very consistent with our posture where we've talked about China being both uh, the single most formidable competitor to the United States. Uh, and it will be so for the lifetimes of every living American today. Uh, and uh, it is also an indispensable partner that we need to work with whether or not we like that fact uh, in order uh, to advance U.S. interests, not out of altruism, but out of self-interest. And I think the Biden administration understands that dualism and that, that twin, those twin truths. Mm -hmm. And I salute the administration for coming at China in what I think is a very reasonable, uh, from a very reasonable posture. Right. Well, now that you have uh, a Democrat president and a Republican president both saying um, pretty strong things to call a country xenophobic, or at least their leadership xenophobic. Um, and what Trump said during his four years, I think it gives a private sector who was maybe scared about aligning with the Trump message. Now they have the Biden message. So the private sector really, if they want to speak out of these things, money talks, as you say, they do at least have some governmental background from a bipartisan standpoint to say, well, listen, our government is saying this. So it's not, it's not that crazy. Um, it, I'm not sure that they will, but they do have it. Um, you mentioned uh, the Uyghurs. And so that to me, that's, that's I think, um, really what the Biden administration, what they're saying, it's really it. But the, but the, the private sector, that's where it seems that you could potentially um, have some pressure if companies say, you know what, we're not going to use this type of labor, we'll move to other parts of China, or we'll leave China altogether. Um, I'm curious your thoughts, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not calling for companies demanding that they do it today. But I'm also saying, we, it feels like there should be a, little, a different conversation that's being had on, on um, what these big corporations should be doing in China. Well, look, when, when you have a relationship between the largest and second largest economy in the world, <clears throat> and it's big, it's complex, it is now obviously extraordinarily contentious politically, it's highly politically charged. Uh, the politics of China in the United States have changed a lot over the last several years. And, and, and to a certain degree, that's true in China as well, although it's obviously in the context, context of a very different type of system. But, you know, fundamentally, um, to use the old metaphor, you know, countries have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to be able to deal with difficult, contentious, and sometimes very uh, charged issues um, in a context in which we're also dealing with 12 other issues that are complex and highly charged and very important to us. And, um, you know, I think companies kind of come at China the same way. They they are. Uh, they want to do what they do. They want to sell products and services. They want to make money. They're motivated by the profit motive, as they should be. Uh, they want to, you know, uh, employ Americans and 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 and, pe and people elsewhere uh, to to do what they do. That's good for America. Uh, to you know, we want to see our exports to China increase. We want to see our production increase. And so, you know, I think companies. Uh, need to fundamentally make decisions based on their um, their own understanding of their own corporate interests and uh, as governed and, and laid out by their boards and their leaderships and so on. If a company decides that it doesn't, uh, first of all, just to state with, with specific respect to the issue of Xinjiang, you know, I don't think any, uh, you know, company in the United States wants to use wants, or, or would knowingly utilize, uh, you know, uh, labor from 
labor camps or uh, you know slave labor or things of that type. I think there are laws against that. I think it's the wrong thing to do. I don't think any U.S. company would ever want to do those things um, because it would be uh, wrong, but it would also be bad for business and bad for their corporate image and so forth and so on. And so uh, needless to say, companies are going to want to shy away from anything that smacks of you know, um, uh, taking unfair advantage of people who are uh, being politically repressed, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, I think it's also true, Ryan, when you, when you look at the way that the United States and U.S. companies do business in China, I think very, very little of it has anything to do with Xinjiang. Anyone that knows anything about China knows that Xinjiang is not the economic um, you know, powerhouse and engine of the People's Republic of China. It's a place that produces uh, tomatoes and some agricultural products and uh, maybe silk and some, some things of that nature, but it's not uh, you know, a driving force within the Chinese economy or the U.S.-China trade relationship. And so I don't think that uh, there's any conflict between the notion of U.S. companies wanting to steer clear of abhorrent labor practices, which I'm sure every U.S. company wants to steer clear of, on the one hand, and staying engaged with China generally on the other. I don't think, it, I don't think there needs to be or should be a false choice presented to companies. And I think, I think companies can do those things at the same time. And I think for the most part, they already are. You're far more, uh, you're far more charitable than I am. I mean, when you look at how Hollywood or the NBA and how they attack um, social issues in the U.S., they're completely silent on issues in China. I have a hard time uh, believing that they're, that they're carrying over these same safety measures and protocols in China as they do in the U.S., just because of the fact they simply, I mean, listen, Daryl, I mean, Dave uh, Fertitta, the Houston Rockets guy, came out after Maury's tweet, like, he doesn't speak for the Rockets, when literally, I've heard Maury, but he's with the Rockets, on multiple podcasts and radio shows talking about the Houston Rockets. So um, <laughs> you're far more terrible than I am. I, I, I simply, we'll, we'll, we'll move on, because I want to uh, get on to, we have just uh, five minutes here, so I want to move on a couple of things. Um, one of the things that you brought up, and you're the first person that I've heard bring this up, um, I've heard other people kind of say it, but you brought up the CCP. Breakdown from your perspective, <clears throat> CCP and how, so like when I'm going to be critical of China, I want to be critical of the CCP. I don't want to be critical of all the CCP members, but you, I've heard you talk about this before. But I've never heard you unpack it. So for someone who wants to be critical of a, a China um, on an issue, how should we do it? Because I want to be respectful, like much like right now, I'm very frustrated with the, with the um, rhetoric in the U.S. that all Republicans are insurrectionists. It's like, okay, that's stupid. Okay, there's 75 million Trump voters. Guys, chill out. Okay, so how should we talk about China when we want to be critical of China? That's a way that's fair to um, all of the Chinese people because I love the Chinese people, I love the country, but we're also being we're, we're criticizing the right people. So how would you how would you advise me? I'm supposed to be advising you, right? The board of advisors. Right, we're, we're switching roles here. So <laughs> how would you handle this? Uh, yeah, it reminds me of the line, advise me as to how to advise you. Yes. Um, yeah, uh, you know, Ryan, uh, you know, what we saw under the Trump administration, certainly in the last two or three years, uh, maybe the last couple of years specifically, was a very specific shift to simply talking about the Communist uh, Party of China. Um, and um, it just seemed weird for a nation uh, through its federal government, our nation, to be speaking about a party when what we're really talking about is the nation that that party leads uh, and rules. And so uh, to me, it's, it's odd. It's, it's, it's a formulation that no other president has ever uh, used and no other administration has ever used to simply make every press release or every tweet about the CCP rather than the People's Republic of China. 
Um, you know, it's something that I think the Biden administration has, has, has moved away from, as far as I can tell so far. Look, uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, is the ruling party of China. It's a one-party state. It's an authoritarian state. The Communist Party rules China. And what the Communist Party does, it does in the name of the People's Republic of China. It doesn't necessarily do it in its own name. It's the ruling party, and its, it's nuclear arsenal is... Is, uh, is the nuclear arsenal of the People's Republic of China. Um, and, and, and its actions as a nation in the South China Sea and its actions as a nation uh, uh, in terms of uh, domestic governance and human rights issues and so on are the actions of the People's Republic of China. So I, I think that you know, the, if, if you just turn the tables as you did kind of in your, uh, the premise to your question, and if you think about uh, you know, a scenario in which China or any other country levels criticism at the level of their head of state or head of government uh, about the Republican Party, it would just sound off to us. It's not that the Republican Party as a party is governing our nation. It's the president and the administration of any party is, is the entity and the individual and the entity that's governing our nation. I think we ought to talk about China as a nation. And yes, it's ruled by a very particular party that has a very particular way of doing things and that has uh, values that in many ways are very different from ours and in some cases quite antithetical to ours and vice versa. Uh, they do things that I think are, uh, the, the leadership of China does things that I think are enormously problematic for the United States, just as it is also uh, true that the U.S. often does things that uh, are very problematic for China when viewed from their perspective. But certainly from an American vantage, look, China does a lot of things that are really problematic for our country and, and a lot of things that are wrong. Um, but to sort of try to uh, characterize that as the party uh, rather than the nation that the party governs, uh, I think there is a semantic distinction there that is important. And I think that the notion of the United States kind of uh, seeing as its um, interlocutor a party rather than a nation is just something that is a bit odd and bizarre. Um, it may be a semantic distinction, but I do think that we're getting back to a posture in this country of talking about countries. And, you know, there's enough there to, to deal with. And, you know, I don't think it's any secret that the people in the United States, uh, a large swath of the American people, probably almost everyone in this country, sees in the Communist Party a political party that does not share the values of uh, the United States. Uh, that's not new news to anybody. Uh, but the ultimate question is how do we as a nation deal with the issues that are on the agenda and how do we actually generate progress on those issues and make people's lives better rather than worse. And that's, uh, that's what I think we need to focus on is solving problems. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I would not want to be associated with things that the Biden administration or Trump administration did. And so from the American perspective, it kind of makes sense. Like, well, America's bombing Syria. It's like, okay, hold on. I ain't got nothing to do with who's bombing Syria. That's your boy, Joe Biden. Or, you know, America's putting tariffs on China. I ain't got, that's your boy, Donald Trump. So from the American perspective, it actually makes sense <laughs> to kind of tease it out because I don't want to be affiliated with their bad policies. I ain't got nothing to do with it. I didn't vote for either. Just so you know, I voted for myself for president this last year. I don't know. I, I was I was counting on some more votes. I felt about 80 million short. It was depressing, but whatever. Um, so, you know, I, there's, I, all, there, there's always 2024, Ryan. It's 2024. That's right. So anyways, do you have time for one more question? I know we're up to clock. OK, absolutely. You, you talked about the escalation of China. Let's put Trump and the U.S. aside for a second. China has you know, they, they haven't found a fight they don't want. I don't think in the last year, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, they are swinging everyone. 
Um, and then you have this rhetoric around the Olympics and how it's supposed to be the, the adult version and the grand table setting and all this. I, I'm seriously considering trying to, trying to tease this out. And so this is just a hypothetical. I'm curious your thoughts. How should we look at what they're doing? So if China continues on its trajectory, which is really kind of poking the bear wherever they find a bear at, um, are they saying to the world, you're going to have to accept us as we are if you come to Beijing? Are they wanting the world to say, you know what? we're not going to the Olympics so that they can internalize that. Say, 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 Hey, you know what? You need us, you need our support. The world doesn't hate us. Do they not care? Like how, how do you read the room on this? Because it's very fascinating because you're, you're starting to hear the U S and other countries like, well, maybe we shouldn't go that might play right into their hands. So give us your thoughts. Well, um, my, my take, um, is that you know China would love to see kind of a repeat of 2008. They would like to successfully host uh, the Olympic Games in 2022. Uh, I think they you know see it as an opportunity to showcase their nation and showcase um, you know what they can do as a nation, both in terms of uh, the production uh, of the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony, uh, but also the um, you know the athletic prowess and the ability to compete with the other nations of the world. These are important symbolic moments for any country, but they certainly are important uh, symbolism for China. Uh, I am I'm certain that China is hoping uh, that uh, the world will come to Beijing in 2022 and take part in a normal Olympics, just as was the case in 2008 for the Summer Olympics. I don't think um, China would regard it as, as success to see a scenario in which um, you know, one or more uh, countries, you know, boycotted the Olympics uh, on various grounds. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, the other countries for their part will need to think very hard about whether, you know, we want to do what we did in 1980 and 1984 again, and have, you know, different versions of the Olympics boycotted by different blocks uh, of players. Um, it's something that we've gotten away from subsequent to 1984. I know there is some real discussion about it around things like Xinjiang and other um, and other aspects of uh, areas where people have a dis strong disagreement, profound disagreement with China. Um, and I think we'll, you know, we'll see that play out over the next year or so. Uh, but I, I don't think there's any question but that China certainly would hope to see a smooth Olympics in which it, from its vantage, is able to showcase its, its nation, its people, its culture, and to kind of build on, in a sense, the public relations success of 2008. Uh, and it is an open question as to what will happen. I mean, we've never seen public sentiment toward China in the United States uh, lower than it is today. Gallup just reported about a week ago that uh, favorable views of China right now are at about 20%, which is literally the all-time low, even lower than it was in the wake of Tiananmen in 1989. Uh, it is absolutely at the bottom. Uh, and, you know, we've just seen this a relentless pounding home of a, of, a, of a message that's very negative about China in this country, particularly over the last year with COVID-19 and the last year of the Trump administration. Against that backdrop, I think there's, a, you know, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in terms of any, uh, um, the degree to which any movement to try to boycott the 2022 Olympics gains uh, uh, momentum and uh, gains critical mass. So that'll be one to watch. Okay, bushchinafoundation.org is the website, and I got one more bone to pick with you. Um, I believe you're you're challenging me for podcast supremacy, and so what's up with that? Well, I'll tell you that was not one of my better decisions because you don't go <laughs> up, you don't lightly go up against the master. But you know, I just want to 
I just want to show that I am learning from you and trying to get better with each week that I do that. <laughs> oh, that's great. Okay, uh, David, where else might folks want to go other than the website? Um, anywhere else you want to send them to? Well, we've got, uh, we now have a YouTube channel that features, uh, I think right now about 46 videos of uh, China related content. Um, and that's, uh, if you go to YouTube and just go to the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations, you'll go right to that uh, channel. Uh, but the website, I think, is the key thing. And I appreciate your sharing that. And we certainly welcome folks coming and take a look at what, we, uh, what we're doing and, and hopefully getting involved in those activities as well. Yeah, and the podcast is called the Bush China Foundation Podcast, I believe. Okay. Um, yes. All right, sir. Thank you so much for your time. It was good as always. And uh, I told Robin a long time ago, I said, I need to have like a four to five hour just debriefing with David one day, just, just, to, just to unpack, just to unpack. So this was just a snippet, but I appreciate your time as always. Thanks so much, Ryan. Always a pleasure. Thank you.